Praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He's not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning as as worshipers and seekers and curious people. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us in our curiosity, reveal yourself in our seeking, reveal yourself in our worship. Show us more of who we are that we might worship you as you ought to be worshipped and praise you as you ought to be praised. We pray that our, our, our teaching this morning and our explanation and our exposition would be faithful and true and that our ears would be open to hear your truth and so order our lives by it. God, even as we read about you who brings the cold and, and, and who brings your wind to, to thaw it and move the waters again, so we see the, the bitter cold we've endured here and, and the warming and and removal of it in the last couple days and your power is awesome we confess may we never grow weary of seeing the endless ways you manipulate our world for your good pleasure may we delight in it also it's in christ's name we pray amen Helps if I have my, my notes on, I guess. Have you ever lost everything? Pro- probably not, but perhaps some of you have, or at least um, I'd be willing to bet that a large number of us have felt like we've lost everything. 
You've lost something or, or maybe many things that you deemed so precious that you felt, maybe for just a moment or two, that you might not be able to go on. Maybe someone else here feels they've never had much to lose in the first place. Uh, perhaps they've never grown up with much. Their family didn't have a strong name in the community. Uh, they, there weren't a lot of resources at home. They didn't get a fantastic education. They didn't have a stellar career. Maybe, maybe you have achieved a few things by grit or by wit, but you've carried a chip on your shoulder and a sense that you don't quite measure up. These same feelings that we have as, as individuals sometimes work out on a larger macro scale, though, don't they, too? We live in a strange time in history, and, and the U.S. is in a stranger place than most in, in just the sheer diversity of our culture. For centuries, and, and even millennia, a person's national pride was typically inextricably linked with his ethnic pride. An Israelite was, was part of the population of Israel and part of the Israelite ethnicity. An Egyptian was part of the population of Egypt and, and part of the Egyptian ethnicity. Well, but you and I are, are part of the American population and our ethnicity is, well, whatever it is. It's kind of a new thing in the, in the whole history of the world. And yet even in this diverse and, and mixed up world, you will see the pride of nations swell on, on February 9th when, when those nations send their athlete delegates to parade through Pyeongchang at the start of the Winter Olympics. And some proud peoples are going to be humiliated and some lowly nations are going to be elevated. And of course, that's a sporting contest. But what if a nation lost more than a medal? What if a nation lost everything? What if uh, a nation lost their very identity? The nation of Israel endured through a period uh, like this. They were born in a, a loose unity before coming under the leadership of a single king. They had three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, before that kingdom was divided around 930 B.C. It's a long time ago. Then for roughly 200 years, Israel existed as two separate kingdoms until in 722 B.C. the Assyrians finally destroyed the northern kingdom and took the people into exile. And in 586 or 87 B.C., depending on how you count, the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar did the same with Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. The people, reeling from war, reeling from the inevitable loss of family and friends, were stripped of their homelands, thrown into a new culture, with a new language, with new customs. They lost homes, professions, sources of income, and entire ways of life. Some of that is described in the Old Testament. Can you imagine that, losing everything, and, and not just as an individual, but, but also as a nation? I, I think sometimes when we feel those senses of loss, right, we, we look sort of wistfully over at our neighbor because the grass, we imagine, is greener over there. But, but what if the neighbor's grass looks just as dead as 
yours. Psalm 147 is a psalm of praise. It's written from the perspective, though, probably of an Israelite who has been through that catastrophe of war and captivity and come out on the other side. What the psalmist argues is that, is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the universe, is worthy to be praised because of what he does for the broken down and the weak. Specifically, he does three things. He grabs the weak. He finds his own uh, gladdening in the weak, and he grows the weak. He grabs the weak. He's gladdened by the weak, and he grows the weak. Before we jump there, though, there's sort of an introduction, uh, a prelude to this psalm. The psalm begins the way that all of the last five psalms of this book begin, with a resounding command, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. And verse 2 sounds like a couple of reasons why we should praise the Lord, right? Uh, for this reason, for this reason. I think a better translation wouldn't be so much that this is an explanation, praise the God because of this or because of this. Um, I think, slight difference, I think they're more of an exclamation. Surely it is good to sing praises to our God. Surely it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. But either way, the, the general sense is understood. And, and we begin as the same with 146 that we looked at last week with what amounts to a celebration of the very idea of offering praise to Yahweh. Praising God, the writer says, is good and pleasant and fitting. You see, the psalmist, the writer of the psalm, enjoys singing about God's good qualities. And that's a kind of a reminder for us that the heart of God's people enjoys singing praises to God. Now, note well, I'm not saying that God's people enjoy singing per se. Nor am I saying that they enjoy praises per se. They enjoy singing praises and they enjoy that those praises are Yahweh's praises. And so we should celebrate that when we have the opportunity to sing songs that express deep and rich truths about God, about Yahweh, and how much richer are the truths that can be said about Yahweh and no other pretender to the name God. And then the psalmist gives us our first point. God grabs the weak. We'll look at verses 2 through 6. And in verse 2, we have what might sound a, at first a bit strange. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. Now, we don't have any dates on this psalm. But the writer seems to be writing about a time when the Israelites had had their nation imperiled, but God was restoring it. It could be that the author is writing prophetically. In other words, it could be that he sees Israel's destruction in the future, but knows God will be faithful to restore it. Or he could be writing in reflection. He sees God currently doing this. He is currently or recently has done this. He's recently rebuilt and built back up Israel and Jerusalem. So one end or the other, but the author is thinking about how God began to restore Israel after its destruction and captivity, which you can read about in, in books like 
Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. But you might protest, this is for Israel. What does this have to do with me? And maybe if you're a diligent Christian who knows you should read your Bible and read all of your Bible, you, you read Psalms like this because you know you're supposed to, and you know it's supposed to be good for you, but you don't really get it. Israel can be used multiple different ways. Uh, it's a land, it's a kingdom, it's a nation, it's a people group. But in passages like this, it seems best to understand Israel as the name given to God's people. And by and large, at the time this poem was written, the only people who belong to God's people are the ones called Israel. In other words, I think it's entirely fair here to see that God is gathering his people. The outcasts are those that have been driven away from the land into exile. In fact, all of this was prophesied in God's law. In the book of Deuteronomy, he told the Israelites that there would be blessings for following him and curses for not following him. And one of the curses for not following him was that they would end in exile. But there was a promise in that that if and when they turned back to God, when they repented and sought Yahweh, he would remember them and he would gather them from the lands where they had been cast out, no matter how far away they had been cast out, and bring them back into the land he had promised them. He would take this people that have become scattered and become not a people and turn them into a new people. With that in mind, you might start to see the relevance. You see, all of us, regardless of what nation or language or ethnicity or people group we were brought into this room from, have been cast into exile. We are exiled from God. Because God, the God who made us, the God who made this universe is a holy God. And just like the Israelites who were cast into Assyria and to Babylon because of their rejection of him and their rebellion against his good rule, so we have been exiled from the presence of God because of our rebellion and our refusal to accept God's good rule. And yet, there's a hope in here that that God, that same God who's holy and who created the universe is also the God who seeks us out and finds us. He is the God who graciously grabs a people that is estranged from the good blessings of fellowship with God because of the wickedness, their wickedness and the rebellion and loves them. There's like some music playing through one of these speakers. Do you guys hear that? Yeah. You got it? Okay. It's really, I can just hear it very faintly. It's like this little tingle in the back of my head. Yeah. 
So when the text says he builds up Jerusalem, what he's saying is, look, these people that he grabs need a place to live. And that place is Jerusalem? Well, what do we mean by that? Well, simply put, God is finding a people and he wants a place for these new people and he puts that in a, a new city, a new Jerusalem, a spiritual Jerusalem, an inhabitation for the people of God. It's a place for various people from every language, from every ethnicity, and every people group, and every possible complexion will be gathered together to worship God and to enjoy him and to enjoy the fruits of his blessings. God is doing that. At present, we are sort of a, a people in process. If you can imagine, if you put yourself in the Israelites' shoes, uh, an Israelite who's been taken into captivity in Babylon uh, at perhaps a young age has endured 70 years there, which is about the time that they were stuck there before they could go back and say you were one of the privileged ones uh, and, and you faithful to Yahweh and, and, and the king allows you to return to your homeland after 70 plus years. And so you're not in Babylon per se, but you haven't gotten back to Jerusalem yet. There's a sense in which that is where we are if we are Christians. We are a people in process. We've left a country, but we are not in a new country yet. We're wandering, but we know where we're going. That is the fate of the Christian. But notice what it says in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Again, if you put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite taken out of captivity, who has lost everything and lost family and possessions and property and income and jobs and language and culture and everything you can imagine, the depth of the wounds of that person, can you imagine how they would feel? But God is a caring and loving God who gathers them up and binds them, and he loves them. It's an irony of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that God seems to have a particular affection for the broken, for the wounded, even the weak. It flies in the face of what our human thinking typically prefers. We want the intact. We want the uninjured. We want the strong. But I think we can go even further. There's a very real sense in which God will have nothing to do with the intact and the uninjured and the strong. There's a sense in which God only wants the broken and the wounded and the weak. And we, and we see that discrepancy in verse 6. The Lord lifts up the humble. And he casts the wicked to the ground. Hebrew poetry uses this feature called parallelism. More so than rhyme and meter as we think about it. We have these individual lines that balance each other. Sometimes one line extends the other. Uh, or repeats it and emphasizes it. Sometimes the two lines uh, say opposite things. They, they flip the thought, sort of a mirror image of the thought to reinforce the idea. And that's kind of what we get here, these contrasting ideas. That's a little bit of an oversimplification, but it covers 
a large amount of Hebrew poetry. Uh, and, and verse 6 exhibits that kind of contrasting uh, parallelism. In the, in the first line, he, he lifts up the humble, and the second one is negative. He sort of casts down or throws down the wicked. Now, it might not strike you at first. I mean, lift up, cast down, those seem opposites, right? But, but how are weak and wicked opposites of one another? Because that's not, you know, the opposite of weak is strong. The opposite of wicked is righteous. That's how we tend to think, right? So how does that work? How do, how do weak and, and wicked be opposites of one another? I mean, certainly there are lowly, wicked people, right? And there's, there's, there's highfalutin, righteous people, right? But there's a spiritual sense in which humble and wicked are precisely opposites. To God, the humble here are not those who are not presumptuous. It's not those who are non-aggressive. It's not those who are fearful. It's not those who lack self-confidence. It's not those who are self-deprecating. It's those who see themselves in light of their creator and recognize their insignificance and their helplessness before him. And so in seeing God rightly, they are brought low. And and, and so then the wicked are precisely wicked because they don't see God rightly. And they don't understand how low they really are. And so there's, there are some times in the affairs of this world that it is necessary for a person of high position, uh, of a high or, or well-to-do family, who has had great successes, who is victorious, and, and who is strong, Sometimes it's necessary for a person like that to lose a significant part of what they think they have and what they think they need and what they value in order to recognize that they only find their true worth and value and only have their true needs met in God. Now, if we look at verses 4 and 5, you, you might think we're talking about a different subject. He, he determines the number of stars and he gives them all names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Are we on a different topic here? No, what I think the psalmist is trying to say here is that the same God who gathered the outcasts of Israel, who heals the brokenhearted and binds the wounds, is the same God who knows every star in every galaxy who is so far beyond our comprehension. If he has this sort of limitless power and limitless knowledge, then certainly he is able to find the outcasts. Moreover, what concern, what Love, that this God who knows the most distant star, the the star whose light has yet to be received by our most powerful telescopes, it's so far away. We don't even know it exists, and yet God sees it, and he has a name for it. That God 
is concerned with a mere man or a mere woman on this dusty planet. So if you have that sense that that you are an exile, you have a sense that you are an outcast, a sense that you've been driven away from the blessings of God, I have some good news for you, that Yahweh, the God who made the universe, is a God who is able to gather you in. He is a God who is able to gather outcasts into a home, and he is able to heal the hurting, and he's able to prepare what is broken, or repair what is broken in you and in the world. So God grabs the weak. The second idea is that God is gladdened by the weak. And and the psalmist makes this clear in verses 7 through 11. The psalmist begins this section with another summons to praise. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. And and so we're we're supposed to offer God thanksgiving and sing more to him. But why? Well, the writer has a lot of reasons for us. He's the one who makes the rain. He's the one who makes grass grow. He's the one who feeds the animals. Think on that for just a moment. The cows eat clover in the fields because God grows clover there for them. The spider spins her web to catch the moth and God prepares the moth for the spider. That's really deep stuff. And the psalmist wants to say something about what delights God. God is not pleased with horses. He's not pleased with legs. What, what in the world, right? Like, what are we even discussing here? But these are the weapons of, of war in the Bronze Age. The horse is like the Bronze Age tank. It's the ancient Near Eastern version of a Humvee. The nation with the most horses and the most powerful horses is the nation to be most respected and feared. And and the legs are the most powerful and strongest muscles in our bodies, right? Everything from the, the knee up. We don't like to think about that part of our body, you know. But it's a huge muscle there, right? And if you can imagine a guy standing in combat with shield and, and sword, and, and he is anchored to the ground because of his leg muscles. And so his power and his ability to defend and attack comes from his, his base. A great warrior, if he's going to wield the sword and shield, needs to be strong for his legs to stand the ground and to wield those weapons of war. But although humans might be impressed with those things, surrounding nations might be impressed by those things. Did I check myself? almost said something. Um, battlefield generals might be impressed by those things. God is not impressed by those things. Why would the God who puts clouds in the heavens and makes rain fall and who feeds the baby birds day and night, wherever they may be and whenever they be, why would a God that powerful, that sovereign, be delighted by such pathetic shows of strength? Instead, what pleases God are those who fear him. 
What pleases God are those whose hope is in his steadfast love. And that's a rich word, steadfast love. Chesed is the Hebrew word. Some translations, it's loving kindness or loyal love. And it's a, it's a commitment to do good to someone ultimately and inevitably. God loves those who wait for it, who patiently wait for his loving kindness to come to fruition in their lives, even when it doesn't seem likely by human estimation. We don't usually think of patience as a um, virtue of strength. It's a virtue, but not a virtue of strength. Especially when there's things that need to be done. We, we want guys who, who take charge. We want people who, who take action and, and get things done and accomplish things. And God delights not in the person who finds his or her own strength, but who waits patiently for his strength. He's gladdened by the weak. And third, God grows the weak. Again, in verse 12, it begins with a summons to praise. Praise Yahweh, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. And in 13 and 14, he gives us the basic picture. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. It's not merely that God grabs the weak to form a people for himself. Or that he is gladdened by the weak who trust patiently in him. He's not content with that. Instead, he grows them. He shores them up. Those who were weak, he makes strong. A city is only as strong as its walls, and the walls are only as strong as the gates, at least in the ancient world. And those are the entry points, right? The places you hope are shut tight against adversaries. And what God does for the weak who are found in him is he protects them. He gives them strong gates, and he puts strong bars on their gates. Our greatest weakness, then, is our spiritual weakness. Our tendency to reject our creator and turn a blind eye to his good ways. Perhaps you uh, know that you, your righteousness doesn't measure up. And perhaps you have a sense that you're not living your life right. And, and perhaps you're thinking... You need to get things in order with God. And, and so you're thinking, this time I'm, I'm going to do it right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the whole church thing. I'm going to do the whole Bible thing. I'm going to you know, do the whole prayer thing as, I, as I'm supposed to. And I, I would challenge you, what you're trying to do is make yourself pleasing to God by your own strength. And he's looking for people who come to them Come to him in weakness. See, how is, how is our weakness remedied? It's, it's not by us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and trying harder and doing more. Ultimately, it's, it's remedied two ways. First, it's remedied by the fact that when we were weak, God became weak for us. He became man and took on flesh. He came to this earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. 
although he had all the strengths and all the powers and all the glories of the divine being, he set aside those divine prerogatives, became as weak as one of us in our flesh. He was tempted to sin in every way like us, and yet he resisted sin unlike us. He died in our place because in our unrighteousness we do rightfully deserve to be exiled from God. But he died that payment could be made to bring us home. And so our weakness is remedied by God becoming weak for us. Secondly, for the one who has received this good news and placed faith and trust in Christ and repented of their sins and so received this gift of return from exile, God gives his Holy Spirit to those who trust him. He guards our steps. He corrects our ways. And he is a seal. He seals us like the bars of the city gate that seal the inhabitants. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.13, In him, the Spirit, you also, when you heard the word of truth, or sorry, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, believed in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit sort of seals the walls of the city of God's people that the adversaries of God cannot ultimately destroy us. And so that we are ensured to receive the glories of the things to come. And that we don't drift aside from the narrow road that leads us there. How does God do that? Well, in verses 15 through 18, uh, it sort of sets that stage. First, again, we have a, a picture of how tremendously powerful God is. God is pictured commanding the universe. The piling on of snow, that was God. It's swift removal, God. He freezes the world and he thaws it. How? By his word. By his command, in the beginning of it all, God creates the world by his word. He speaks however it is that God speaks. And it was. It existed. And it continues to exist. Here we have a parallel. Only God is not creating here in Psalm 147. He's governing And what we learn is that God governs the universe the exact same way that he created the universe. By his word. By his very word. God daily tells the sun to rise and it rises. By his very word, God causes the moon to reflect the sun's light for us all at night. God's word is mighty. And so God himself speaks through the prophet Isaiah and says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now look, he's also spoken to his people, he says. He has given his word to his people. His powerful self-expression that that can order the universe is in the very hands of his people. In ancient times, long past, God chose the nation of Israel 
to be a light to the world, revealing his glory. And he did this in part by giving them his word, the scriptures. He spoke to Israel in a way he spoke to no other people or nation. Christians, if if you are numbered as a Christian, if that is how you see yourself, this is no less true of you, no less true of us. These scriptures are our sacred deposit. Sure, the the world can read these pages. They're they're free on the the internet on a thousand different sites. Anyone can read these pages. Uh, Just as anyone in the world could have traveled to Israel and copied the Jewish scrolls and taken God's law with them. But there's a sense in which they are uniquely ours. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Because we've been uniquely given the Spirit, We uniquely are in a position to grasp his word. Just as God governs and orders creation by his word, he is growing us, strengthening us, fortifying us, protecting us weak ones by his word. The first psalm, Psalm 1, describes the person who delights in God's word. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And so, you might say the mechanism by which God grows his people grows them into strength, is his word. By his word, we are corrected. By his word, we are encouraged. By his word, we are struck down where we need to be struck down. And we're lifted up where we need to be lifted up. They're good and pure and true words that give us wisdom to live well and truth to live righteously. So there's two things that we take away from from Psalm 147, and there's a lot. But I hope you at least grab these two. Christians, those of you who are Christians here, go to the Word. It is where God, who has grabbed you and has been gladdened by you, that same God who rules the universe, wants to grow you by His Word. What is our habit of engaging his word that it might grow us? And if you're not a Christian, if you're not still yet sure whether you are on a path of following Christ or even what that means, let me encourage you that there is hope for those who are weak. There's hope for those who see their ultimate ineffectiveness who see their ultimate unrighteousness, who see their ultimate inability before their creator to be lifted up and have a home and to have peace 
with the one who made them. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are a people who often does not go to your word. The very word that formed us and formed this world, we scorn and spurn. And I, too, am among that number. Forgive us for our neglect of your word. Forgive us for our neglect of the the source and giver of life. You, your very self, who discloses your nature in Scripture. God, we confess that we are weak and that we are sinners and that we are desperately in need of your grace and your spirit. May we who know you ever press into your strength, knowing that when we are weak, then in Jesus Christ we are truly strong. And may those who still seek truth and seek a path out of exile see their lowliness before you and be lifted up to new life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.